Well, if you would, as the kids are wandering out, turn with me to Genesis chapter 47, the very end of Genesis 47. Genesis 47, beginning in verse 29, and then we're going to go through all of Genesis 48 as well. So we are, Lord willing, about three weeks away uh, from concluding our study in Genesis, and I pray that it's been both fruitful um, for your own heart and soul as we've walked from the beginning uh, to where we are now at the end of uh, Jacob's life. And as we get into this, uh, my, my sermon title is called Discipleship Till Death. Discipleship Till Death. If you were to summarize what a Christian's primary responsibility is in the world, what would you say? Maybe you'd say, well, it's worship. It's worship of God and who He is. Sure, you can't be a Christian and not worship the God who made you. Maybe you'd say, well, it's uh, care for others, loving one another, right? Jesus tells His disciples, they'll know you are my disciples for the love you have for one another. Certainly, you ought to love one another, just as God in Christ has loved you. Maybe you would say, well, it's, pastor, it's evangelism. It's missions, evangelism. That it's, it's about the proclamation of who God has revealed Himself to be in this world and how He's redeemed fallen, sinful humanity in His perfect Son, Jesus. Yes. Sure. It is about evangelism. It is about worship. It is about loving one another. And all of these things are tied up in discipleship. I've already mentioned it as we prayed. Jesus' great commission out of Matthew chapter 28 to go, therefore, right? All authority has been given to Jesus. He's risen from the grave. He's fixing to ascend into heaven. And he says to his disciples, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples, teaching them all that I have commanded you. What has Jesus commanded us? To love one another, to proclaim the gospel to one another, to fellowship to one another. Certainly, there are these smaller uh, categories of what Christians ought to be about, but they fall under this large umbrella of being a disciple, being one who learns and loves and leads others to do the same uh, in loving and learning about Jesus. And you may think, well, Sean, if we're in Genesis 47 and 48, Jesus isn't quite on the scene yet. Right. So we've got to bridge that gap from what is Jacob doing and what are we then called to do likewise. And Jacob, I think, is being 
a disciple maker of his family. And we'll see this as we go on. Our main idea this morning is that while the blessings of the kingdom, like the kingdom itself, may seem backwards, this kingdom progresses with the faithful, ordinary proclamation of the blessings of God in Christ. While the blessings of the kingdom, like the kingdom itself, may seem backwards, this kingdom progresses with the faithful, ordinary proclamation of the blessings of God in Christ. To boil that down, you may have stopped taking notes after the first three and a half sentences. God's kingdom uses ordinary people to move forward. God's kingdom uses ordinary people proclaiming the gospel to move forward. In this text, Genesis 47 and 48, we remember that Jacob and Joseph have just been reunited. Jacob has then moved his family to Goshen. And where we left off last week was Jacob's family, what? They flourish. That in the land, in the midst of this famine, where the Egyptians are saying, give us bread, give us food to buy, give us money to buy bread, lest we die before your eyes. In the midst of that, God's people flourish. They're blessed. And yet the immediate context for these following verses is Jacob is about to die. Jacob is about to die. So Jacob, facing the reality of death on his deathbed, uses this pivotal moment to bless his offspring, Joseph, and the offspring of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. In doing so, he recounts the goodness of God to him as well as his fathers, Abraham and Isaac. Look with me at verse 29 of chapter 47. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and started and said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, He's asking for this covenant, but the setting is that Jacob is dying. That's our immediate context. Now, what is our new covenant context? Let's look at where we're at. Remember, we're in uh, Genesis. We've seen these promises made uh, to Eve and to Adam that an offspring would come through the seed of the woman who would destroy the seed of the serpent. We've then seen this particular covenant being made and entered into with Abram and his family, from Abram, then Abraham, to Isaac, and now to Jacob. These uh, proclamations, but now sitting in this pew today on February 5th of 2023, we are in the new covenant. We're not in Genesis. So this context of looking at it in light of what Christ has done, it's that the responsibility of a Christian is no less than the bearing of the role of a disciple. That is, the regular, do you hear that? The regular recounting of God's goodness in the world and to you personally. This is shown primarily in the personal work of Christ. This glorious reminder 
that God's ultimate proof of His goodness toward us was shown in Christ's sacrificial death for our sins and for the sins of all humanity and His subsequent glorious ascensions. Friend, this is what Jacob is doing. Jacob, in our text this morning, is recounting God's goodness to him. And as we see, the text will move in two primary progressions. First, the author sets up the narrative, the setting. that Jacob is dying. And second progression is that the, there's a blessing. There's a blessing that Jacob bestows on his offspring. So let's take these in part. The setting and the blessing. Jacob is dying. We've already read verse 29. But again, in verse 1 of chapter 48, it says, After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. There's no escaping this. Right? We remember the curse that fell on Adam and by and through Adam to all of humanity. Remember that awesome song that we looked at? I think it was in Genesis chapter 4. That I think from my very mouth, from this very pulpit, the song of the heartbeat of everyone dies. It was a very hope-filled sermon. As we looked at And he lived this long, and he died. And he lived this long, and he died. And we looked at time and time again. Death is inescapable due to the fall of sin. That's our problem. And Jacob finds himself in the midst of this promise that he would be fruitful and multiply, that God would be with him, that he would make out of him, out of his offspring, many nations. But he cannot escape the reality of death. Jacob finds himself in need of a Savior. And I believe by Jacob's faith in Yahweh that he experiences eternal life, trusting the Word of God. But in this setting, as Jacob is dying, he asks his son, more or rather, he requests, he bids his son to swear for a specific thing. And what is this request? Look with me as we continue on. He requests that Joseph bury his father, not in Egypt, but with and amongst his kindred, to be buried next to Abraham and Isaac, to be buried in the place where the promises of God were made. I think it's a sign of resurrected hope that he wanted both in this life and for all of life for all of eternity to be reunited with the God who made him and to be reunited with those who came before him who passed on this covenant of faith to him friends that's discipleship that's discipleship passing these things on to other generations But Jacob doesn't just ask. He doesn't just make uh, his son swear. He seals it with a sign. He says, put your hand under my thigh. Verse 29. 
If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me die with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And Joseph answered, I will do as you have said. And Jacob said, swear to me. And he swore to him. It's almost as if there's this flashback. Remember Jacob, the shyster, the trickster, right? Now he's telling his own son, you swear to me, Joseph. No getting out of this. Now we've seen this example of a covenant before. This seems like a really strange thing. Put your hand under my thigh. Aren't you glad that we now in business shake hands? as a sign of agreement. You may think putting your hand under somebody's thigh is uncomfortable. Just imagine what it really means because this is not as clear as the Hebrew is. This example comes from us earlier with Abraham making uh, his servant Eleazar covenant in a similar manner. In Genesis chapter 24, verse 2, Eleazar, remember, is the servant of Abraham. He would have been the heir of the promise. One commentator says that had Abraham and and Sarah not had a child, that they would have adopted Eliezer, their servant, and he would have become their heir. But then Isaac comes on the scene, and now Eliezer is tasked by Abraham to go and find a wife for Isaac. So some similarities. Abraham and Jacob were both old and were dying when they entered into this covenant. This sign under the thigh, uh, as one commentator notes, is a figure of, of speech for the reproductive organs of a man, denoting an offspring. The promise of God to Eve is that the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent. And I believe in both of these instances, there's a reminder in this sign that God will do just as He's promised to do. And in one sense, Joseph will not be the one whom we, trust, uh, whom we trace the lineage of Jesus through, but rather it will be Judah. And so Jacob is bidding him to Seal this covenant in such a way. So this is the setting. Jacob is dying. I think it's pretty easy to understand that we would make different decisions when death is presently before us. We would make different decisions if death was before us, just in one song written by Tim McGraw, writing uh, this song called Live Like You Were Dying. Friend, let me ask you before getting into that awesome song, what would you do differently if you knew? If you knew and that death was presently before you? We think so often that it's so far out there. That it's so far removed from today that, well, we've got time. And then that prognosis hits and you realize 
the reminder that we are human. From dust we came and dust we shall go. What decisions would you make differently if death was presently before you? Tim McGraw sings in this song, Live Like You Were Dying. His lyrics go wrong in that he prescribes, if you find this prognosis, you ought to live like you were dying. And here's what you should do. You should go skydiving. You all know it. You go skydiving. You'd go Rocky Mountain climbing. You'd go riding a bull named Fu Manchu. Friends, that's an awful prescription. That is an awful prescription. Don't go skydiving. Don't go Rocky Mountain climbing and don't go riding a bull named Fu Manchu. Rather, as a disciple of Christ, recognizing that we have a time stamp. God knows the hairs on our head and He knows and numbers our days. Friend, you are dying. And as a disciple of Christ, you are tasked with the proclamation of the kingdom of God that was instituted and ushered in with Christ. That ought to make going skydiving seem so insignificant. That ought to make, I, I want to go to the Rocky Mountains so bad right now, it's crazy. But proclaiming the goodness of God through His kingdom, through the work of Christ, ought to be so much superior to our desire to do anything. You may say, well, I don't really want to go skydiving or Rocky Mountain climbing or ride a bull. That sounds awful. Maybe your joy would be more well-served to watch TV, to watch that Super Bowl next Sunday. Friend, as a disciple of Christ, we are, you are tasked with the proclamation of the kingdom of God that was instituted and ushered in with Christ. That is what Jacob will do in the following verses. He'll proclaim the goodness of God to the following generations. This is, I think, the same call that Adam and Eve received as a mandate to go forth and multiply, to be made in God's image, to see that image flourish and multiply on the earth. It's also the reminder that Moses also writes in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 9. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit down in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your Eyes, you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Imagine how different our lives would be if all of those things, all of those ways of proclaiming the goodness of God to us in Christ would be on our hearts, would be on our lips, would be on our homes, would be on our gates. Friends, I think it would be much different. 
We may lament about the state of the Christian church. We may lament at how every generation becomes more and more secular and woe is us. And yet we take the gospel and the role of discipleship as something that's secondary. Friends, the problem's not out there. The problem is us. We, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, have been commanded to take the gospel to those in need. We are the problem if we're not doing that. But we go beyond this setting where Jacob is dying to the second progression where we'll spend most of our time, and that is the blessing. The blessing. Israel's backwards blessing for forward progress. Israel's backwards blessing for forward progress. Look at how he starts. Remember the setting. Keep that on your mind. That the setting is Jacob is about to die. And what does he do with his last time? Remember, he doesn't do all of those foolish things, but rather he recounts. Look at verse 3. And Jacob said to Joseph, the bed, uh, the deathbed conversation between a father and a son. And what does he do? He doesn't use it talking about how great his son is. No, he uses it to proclaim the goodness of God. God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Paran, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way when there was still some distance to go. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. In his deathbed, Jacob uses this time to proclaim to his son, God Almighty revealed himself to me. I was listening to a sermon uh, a couple weeks back uh, by a pastor. I can't remember where he's located, but his name is Derwin Gray. And in one of his applications, he pled with the members of his congregation to live such a life that your children don't have to lie at your funeral. Live such a life that they don't have to lie about the good things about who you are. Friends, Jacob could have recounted all of his foolishness, and there was plenty in his life. But what does he do in this moment? He recounts the blessings of God. He appeared to me. He blessed me and he spoke to me. Friends, when salvation happens in the heart of a believer, it's as if a light shines on darkness. That a heart of flesh or a heart of stone becomes a heart of flesh. Paul, the apostle, in claiming his apostleship as one who didn't follow the ministry of Jesus, what does he say? He said, Jesus 
even to me, revealed himself on the road to Damascus. Friends, that's what happens to us. The Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, reveals to us the person and work of Christ and applies it to our lives, to where we would say, the Lord appeared to me. The Lord blessed me. And the Lord spoke to me. How does the Lord appear to us in this day? He appears to us in Christ. How does the Lord bless us? He blesses us in Christ with eternal life from a life that is dead in trespasses and sins to an eternal life that will never end. How does the Lord speak to us? If you're keeping track, the first two were Jesus. The third is also Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1 reminds us that long ago, and many times the Lord spoke to us by prophets, but in these last days He's spoken to us in His Son. Friends, this blessing that we recount is not a material blessing. This blessing that we recount is the Lord appeared to us. The Lord blessed us in Christ and the Lord speaks to us and leads us. Friends, it's that message that we ought to recount to our children, to our grandchildren. And I'm not just talking about mere lip service. I remember when my grandmother was receiving in-home care before she passed, that her nurses made mention, I think we've heard this from other folks, that for those who have trusted in Christ, there is a demeanor and a difference in disposition when death is right before them. Friends, I think it's similar with Jacob, and the thing that's on his lips is the beauty and mercy of God. That of all of the people in Padan that the Lord could have revealed himself to, he chose Jacob. Friends, we have a similar testimony. Of all of the people that the Lord could have revealed himself to and redeemed by his blood, and called to repentance and faith. If you've trusted in Christ, he has done that for you. Are you recounting this blessing? Maybe perhaps you're not recounting this blessing because it seems similar to the blessing that Jacob gives to his grandchildren. It seems a little backwards. Pastor, I don't know about all this stuff. Like there's, you know, the David and Goliath story and like everybody's rooting for the David if they win. But this whole being different for the kingdom of God and for glorifying Christ in the world, that just, I don't know, that just doesn't, uh, doesn't seem that appealing. Friends, we have a backwards gospel that's foolishness to those who are perishing and to the religious. It's a stumbling block. The gospel's foolishness, and that's from the Bible. It is backwards, just like 
the backwards blessing that Israel gives his grandchildren, Ephraim and Manasseh. Look with me at verses, excuse me, 8 through 22. 8 through 22, which I'm just going to say, you can't leave this up here and not leave some left for me, Jesse. That's not fair. I thought she was here. She'll have to see it later. This blessing is backwards. And we've seen these proclamations as the blessing has come forward, that the covenant moves forward in an almost backwards way. It comes through uh, the Lord having to open the womb of many women. It came through, uh, what did we even say, that Joseph received this dream, this vision. And what was the dream? Remember why his brothers hated him? Guys, I was just, I don't know, I was just like having this dream and y'all bowed down to me. And that's pretty great. Who was Joseph? Joseph was not the oldest. Joseph was young. Who do we see uh, with um, Jacob and Esau? Who was the oldest? The blessings seem backwards and it doesn't stop here as joseph brings his sons ephraim and manasseh to his father jacob he tries to do everything culturally in the right way the younger son at the left hand the older son on the right hand just look at it ephraim we see and joseph took them Both. Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right and brought them near him. Ephraim was the younger and his left hand on the head of Manasseh. Jacob's doing it all wrong. Jacob's messing this up. And the text reminds us that Joseph was displeased, saying, not not this way, verse 18, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn, put your hand on his head. But Jacob said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be a great nation. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations so he blessed them that day saying by you israel will pronounce blessings saying god make you as ephraim and manasseh thus he put ephraim before manasseh the younger in superiority to the older it's backwards it, dis, it displeased Joseph. Dad, what are you doing? Think about how backwards our kingdom is. Not our kingdom, God's kingdom. How backwards the kingdom of God is. Jesus in the Gospels says that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The smallest of the seeds The kingdom of God is like a seed that's put into the ground that doesn't grow until it dies. And then it sprouts 
forth. What's he doing? He's proclaiming his kingdom. He's proclaiming his activity. He's proclaiming his death and resurrection. Friends, we come under the king who died. But he didn't stay dead, for he rose again. As one comedian says, that doesn't make any sense. That God's kingdom for all of eternity would flourish in such a way that it would take the king dying? Yes. That he would live and provide eternal life for all who come after him. What are we reminded of when Jesus instructs his disciples? He reminds them that they are like birds of the air. He says, birds of the air have nests and foxes have dens, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That doesn't make any sense. The king of the kingdom for all eternity doesn't have these things. Friends, what does he tell the scribes and Pharisees? What does he tell Pilate? Are you the king of the Jews? My kingdom is not of this world. Friends, it may look with physical eyes, with the bean counter on the scale of does this make sense or not. It may seem like a gospel that is backwards, but friends, it is in this gospel that the kingdom forever progresses. It is this kingdom that will not be shaken. It is this kingdom that is built on the sacrifice of Christ and on the gospel. It's this commandment, this commission to go and proclaim this until we die. For faith comes by hearing and hearing of the word of Christ the power is not in ourselves. The power is in the message. Friends, it may seem backwards, but the kingdom of God, as Jesus says, is here. The kingdom of God is being established and one day will show itself to be the most powerful and the only eternal kingdom that we've ever seen. So I want to ask you some questions as we conclude. How do you recount the goodness of God in Christ with your children? How do you recount the goodness of God in Christ with your children? What about your grandchildren? I'd be remiss if I didn't fit this into this sermon. My grandfather says, you can tell a lot about how good of a parent you were by how your kids turn up. But you can tell a lot more by how your grandkids turn up. And he and my grandma proclaimed the goodness of God in Christ to me 
more than I could imagine, probably more than I ever heard. Beloved, your actions, your words with your children, your grandchildren, your co-workers, your neighbors have impact because faith comes by hearing. How does the kingdom that seems backwards move forward? By the regular proclamation of the goodness of God in Christ. How do you recount the goodness of God in Christ with those around you? Secondly, do you understand that the kingdom of God is a backwards kingdom? Do you understand that the kingdom of God is a backwards kingdom? What does that mean? Friend, don't expect to receive glory and honor in this life. It's not going to work that way. While it seems backwards, this message of the kingdom and the king who is victorious, both now and forever and ever, and it's that kingdom and that king that there should be nothing of more importance than proclaiming this good news. Thirdly and finally, because this kingdom is a forever kingdom, there is no other message. There is no other hope. There is no other movement worth giving your life for. Friend, when you find yourself as Jacob on his deathbed, will you be found recounting the goodness of God in Christ to those around you? I pray that you will, and I pray that you wouldn't just wait until then. I pray that your words and your actions today, this week, this year, would ever be on your lips. The text we read for our scriptural call to worship from Psalm chapter 34 continues and says in verse 8 of Psalm chapter 34. Maybe you're here and you're like, if this is a backwards kingdom, I don't know that I'm really for that. I don't know that I want my lips to be filled with recounting the goodness of God in Christ for me. I don't really know what that looks like. My call to you is something different. It's the call that the psalmist makes to those who hear from Psalm 34 verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Friend, if you're here and the goodness of God in Christ means nothing to you, taste and see. Taste and see. This living water that will spring up from within you, a well that will never end. Taste and see this Savior who is sweet to you, who's gentle, who's tender, who pleads with you to come. Friend, if you are caught in your trespasses and sins, taste and see that the Lord is good. And beloved, walk as if you've tasted a five-star meal. 
The Lord is good, and may that be what is ever on our lips. Let's pray.